Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Hello, everyone. I wanted to just welcome everyone in for the fourth episode in the new Retina Radio series on COVID-19. And this episode is going to be specifically focused on what do you do with your practice uh, during and after the coronavirus outbreak? Uh, currently, as it stands, it's April 7th, and we have just over 1.4 million people infected worldwide with coronavirus. 387 in the United States with 12,291 deaths. Joining me tonight will be two uh, amazing retina specialists and actually really brilliant business minds in retina, and Dr. Alan Ruby with Associated Retina Consultants in uh, Detroit, William uh, Beaumont Hospital, and uh, Dr. Robert Foster at the Cincinnati Eye Institute, uh, who is uh, a part of the Cincinnati Vision, Cincinnati Eye Institute vision partners. Um, and so we're going to talk to both of them. Uh, first, let me go ahead and turn it over here and just have each of you kind of introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what's going on in your areas. Alan, why don't you lead us off? So I'm Alan Ruby. I am one of the managing partners and co-presidents at Associated Retina Consultants. Uh, we recently partnered with a private equity-backed eye care platform called Eye Care Partners in September of 2019 and have sort of uh, gone that trajectory now for the last uh, eight months, originally without the COVID issue, and now for the last month with the COVID issue, really taking up most of our time. As I'm sure most folks are well aware of, Michigan's been hit very, very hard by COVID. I think right now we have, I think, the fifth most number of cases in the country, somewhere along those lines. And are hoping and praying that our peak, our apex, is going to be sometime the latter part of this week. So we have been greatly influenced and have had our entire practice basically turned upside down by the epidemic. You know, we've instituted uh, numerous changes in the practice, not the least of which are just to try to keep our patients and our staff and our physicians safe. Most of those have revolved around reducing patient volumes, uh, closing offices, reducing staffing at the offices that have remained open, making sure we have good social distancing. Uh, the hospital that we operate on has canceled all elective surgeries. So the only surgeries we're able to do are basically acute retinal detachments, uh, very little endophthalmitis going on, obviously, because there's really no cataract surgery or any elective anterior segment surgery going on really in the state of Michigan right now. And so really everything we've been sort of doing now has been towards just maintaining our ability to take care of as many patients as we can who have vision-threatening disease, which is basically ongoing patients with macular degeneration, by and large. And then some of our patients also who have diabetic edema or vascular disease, mostly in the patients who only have one good eye. Uh, we're trying to put off people as long out as we can. There is a stay-at-home order in the state of Michigan that's been in effect for about three, three and a half weeks now. So really, we're looking at both the individual health as well as the public health issues. That is, the individual health, you know, trying to keep people with as much vision as we can, 
and the public health issue of trying to keep people as safe as we can by reducing the number of people we have coming out to the offices. That's great, Alan. Rob, how are things in Cincinnati? Uh, hey, John. Thank you so much for having uh, us on this evening. Uh, Cincinnati's a little different situation. In fact, the state of Ohio in general, either we haven't had the worst of it yet or our very early shutdown, because uh, we closed up fast and, and hard uh, about three weeks ago. We may be seeing that blunting the curve a little bit earlier here in Cincinnati uh, than certainly than in Detroit. And the other guests that you had on last week from New Orleans and from uh, Seattle, uh, that was a very sobering program, listening to those three doctors talk last night. Um, I've, I've been at Cincinnati for, oh gosh, since 1997, uh, part of the Cincinnati Eye Institute. And unlike uh, Alan's group, we're a very large multi-specialty group with five uh, groups here in uh, Ohio and two in Virginia, again, backed by a, a PE platform, a CEI Vision Partners or CVP. And we're large. I mean, not as big as Allen's group, but with 1,200 employees and 130 providers, um, it's really impacted our operations just the same as Alan pointed out. We are not on hospital grounds. We are all in private practice offices. And of at least in Southwest Ohio, we have closed down four small offices, but five regional offices remain open. And it's mostly being uh, uh, kept open just to provide urgent, semi-urgent care, mostly of glaucoma and retina patients who uh, risk losing vision without uh, sustained care. Just as in Royal Oak, we are down to emergency surgeries only. Uh, we stopped doing elective surgery three weeks ago and uh, we've consolidated four ASCs down to one ASC and only one operating room out of seven in that ASC are being used right now. 60-40 retina versus glaucoma uh, are utilizing that uh, ASC that's open. Um, uh, we, uh, we also uh, closed under a private equity platform as Allen's group did. I serve as the chair of that board for CVP and um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our, our leadership team, both on the physician side and the administrative side, just the tireless work that they've done the last month. Uh, they've just been the best example of grace under pressure, as I'm sure they have been for your group, John, and your group, Alan. Uh, we really owe them a debt of gratitude getting us through this up to this point. That's a, that's great insight and a good lead in. Um, what we're actually going to do tonight that differs a little bit than our previous uh, casts is we're actually going to watch a couple of uh, previously recorded interviews done by uh, Off the Grid Ophthalmology, which uh, is hosted by Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz, both fine uh, ophthalmologists. And they had a chance early on in this to interview uh, Bruce Mailer of uh, BSM Consulting. Uh, he's the founder of BSM Consulting. BSM Consulting kind of does everything from front to back for uh, ophthalmology practices. And Matt Jensen, who is the uh, CEO of Vance Thompson Vision, but also is the founder of Jensen Marketing. And so we'll have them just discuss, because I feel like they do a really, really good job of discussing some of the government programs uh, that are more applicable to small businesses. And then we'll come back and, and talk to Rob and Alan about these programs and, and maybe about how private equity is affected by this. So let's go ahead and check out this, uh, this Paycheck Protection Program, um, small business application for loans with Mailer and uh, Jensen. 
Bruce, um, you know, one thing that Matt brought up was uh, this act, this CARES Act that came through. Um, and uh, being you run a consultant firm, I imagine that you have been fielding hundreds and hundreds of questions about it. Can you briefly run through, for all the people on this call, just some of the highlights, you know, PPP versus disaster loan and, and furlough versus layoff. Can you kind of hit some of the hit some of the high notes for us, for us with that? Yeah, first of all, PPP is a different program from the economic disaster recovery loan that the SBA has had in place for years. So you just need to separate the two. Everyone that's listening in today, everyone who's listening in today should be aggressively pursuing PPP today. Uh, the reality is that SBA, the government is now authorizing the lenders to deal directly with small business to secure their uh, paycheck protection loan. Uh, the maximum loan amount authorized, so first of all, is $350 billion has been appropriated uh, to support small business. So get in line and get in line fast because you don't know if they're gonna expand the number. My guess is in phase four, they will be on 350 billion, but I don't wanna be sitting on the sidelines. So you've gotta activate the process now and the feds have authorized lenders, both qualified lenders and other lenders uh, to um, work directly uh, with small business. Small business now can apply for a loan. The maximum amount of the loan is the lesser of 10 million or two and a half times your average payroll costs. And to make it simple, let's just say over 2019. So you calculate your average monthly payroll costs for 2019 the uh, small, uh, the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce has a, you can go online, find their little write-up. They have a little calculator there. You can do the math yourself. It doesn't take long to do. And your maximum loan is two and a half times the average monthly payroll cost as defined in the calendar 2019 or 12 months ending 228 or 331. I can't remember how that works. But it's not going to change very much because you didn't start laying people off until perhaps more recently or furloughing employees. So you, you, let's say that number is $100,000 a month. That was your average monthly payroll. Uh, you just take two and a half times that, your maximum loan amount would be $250,000. You can then use those loan proceeds. Uh, once you receive the cash, it's pretty much fungible. But remember what the government's trying to do. They're trying to encourage you to retain people or rehire people you have let go. So they've added a loan forgiveness provision to the PPP. The loan provision, uh, the loan forgiveness provision uh, the amount of loan that you've borrowed now, go back to the 250K example, uh, the amount of that loan that gets forgiven is a function of costs that you incur between the date you get the loan and the next eight weeks. So if you get the loan next Wednesday, whatever date that is, measure forward eight weeks. Whatever expenses you have incurred for payroll costs as defined within the context of the maximum loan amount, use the same definition, plus uh, rent, utilities, and other debt service related expenditures. You total all that up and assuming you kept the same number of people you had before, you're gonna get a forgiveness of that loan come June 30. So now the feds are gonna issue regulations on the details of how the loan forgiveness works, but it's essentially free money. There's no personal guarantees. There's no fees involved. There's no collateral requirements. And best yet, you don't have to give them any financial statements. Literally, you sign a good faith certification that you were in business on February 15th of 20 and that you employed people on that date and that you're going to use the money for the right purposes. 
you sign the good faith certification, and then the lender turns around literally within 48 to 72 hours, that loan should get approved and funded. So I've talked to B of A and, and uh, Chase Bank today, two of the largest uh, qualified lenders under SBA, and they have, it's taken them a day or two, Blake, to get the, all the information coming back from the SBA. As of about two hours ago, B of A said, we got what we need. We're opening up our own portal, Bruce. You're gonna go online and we will make sure you get online like right away and uh, just be ready. So have your computation of your maximum loan amount ready. In other words, do get out your payroll tax returns, do the math, but remember, when you are calculating the payroll costs, uh, any employee, doctor, owner, doesn't matter, any employee whose comp is above 100K, you can only count up to the first 100K of comp. So for me, it's the first thing we're doing, Blake, and we're coupling that with a line of credit, but that to me is the, the, the best possible alternative. And it ties into your question about furlough and layoff, but I'll just pause in, in case you have follow-up questions on PPP. Bruce, I'm just going to mention one thing because it's coming up on the chats. <clears throat> a lot of people are saying, how can we possibly apply now when it's not going to be ready, you know, till the end of the week, the SBA parameters? The banks and the SBA are meeting daily is what we're learning. And um, they're building their own portals, like you mentioned. We have all of our detail already into our bank in the form of having completely filled out 7A applications for now. Knowing there that- you go whatever portal they have that's ready, they can just dump it right in and we're right at the front of the line. So if you're looking for something to do today, go to those guidelines that Bruce mentioned yesterday and today and get them ready so you're ready to rock and roll. Exactly, so, because they're gonna take them in order. They're gonna take them in order in which they've received them. Right. And uh, you know, money is gonna get, money is gonna dry up fast on this because there's so many small businesses out there. The 350 billion is gonna be woefully inadequate to cover this. So uh, there'll be more money coming in behind this in the phase four uh, component of this, but get out in front of this now. And by while you're doing that, uh, I'm working alongside or with B of A right now, and they're just preparing at the same time they're getting all of our financial information, which is not needed for PPP, but it is needed for another credit facility that we're going to have on hold. They're waiving fees. They're doing for good customers. Uh, you can do this. And your, your, most of the people on this call have good banking relationships. And if they haven't had good banking relationships, there's no better time than right now to go, you know, just get on the phone with them because you're not meeting with them in person. But uh, this is where you may decide you want to switch banks. If your bank's not on the phone with you helping you out right now, maybe some other bank will. So don't be shy about using this as an opportunity to find a bank that will actually work with you during these periods of time. That was really, uh, really insightful from Bruce to kind of go through that paycheck protection program. Alan, I'm going to start with you. Being in private equity, are you eligible? Is your group eligible to do this PPP? No, uh, we're not. You know, as, as Rob had indicated about the size of theirs and their employees, we have uh, over 4,000 employees uh, spread out through 11 states or so. So at this point in time, we are not eligible. Uh, there's some hope that as the next phase comes out, they may deal with some of these larger corporations under which we would fall. But as of right now, the answer is no. So Rob, I'll turn to you also being in private equity. So it's assumed that you wouldn't qualify for this. If you're in a group like Cincinnati, I was, let's say before the private right. equity um, initiation, should you apply for these loans? Is this a no brainer? 
I, I think for groups that would have less than 500 total employees, that includes providers, by the way, it's a no-brainer. You should be applying for the PPP. I would just point out PPP is not specific for healthcare. So you're going to be in line with every other small business across the United States. And if you read reviews about what people's experience has been trying to get a PPP loan, um, I think that money that he referenced a week ago is going to dry up. I'm not sure it hasn't already dried up. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't get your name. I think ophthalmologists though, are going to have other resources, other sources of liquidity that will be as valuable, including the SBA loans uh, under Title I and the, you know, the Medicare prepayment uh, that we've heard so much about, uh, because that is more, at least the Medicare prepayment is obviously more healthcare specific. And I think there are elements of the bill that that uh, groups like our size can benefit from. But You know, you touched on something that we want to get into, really, and I think now's a great time. Alan, the Medicare prepayments, is there a reason not to take the Medicare prepayments? So it's a great question, John. On the face of it, the short answer would be no. I mean, obviously, you are looking at prepayments that will front you money you otherwise would collect over a period of time to allow you to continue to run your business and stay in business. Now, obviously, nothing comes, there is no free lunch, right? So this is going to be taken out of what you otherwise would collect going forward. So if for some reason, you're in a position where you anticipate that your forward going earnings are going to be significantly reduced versus what they historically had been, you could potentially put yourself in a situation where you fronted more money than you're going to be able to, to pay back. Uh, I think for most practices, that's unlikely. So I would say that uh, unless there's a very interesting circumstance in which that type of situation would occur, it seems to me that most practices would greatly benefit from this in order to give them the cash flow. And when you apply for that, Alan, are you all anticipating uh, a decreased volume as you apply for that? Are you applying for the same amount that you would potentially be earning if there wasn't such a slowdown? Yeah, in, in all likelihood, we would be applying for the same amount if there was not a slowdown because it's based on historical billings and receipts. So the short answer is uh, based on without the slowdown. Rob, same question for you, but also with a little bit of a twist. Should both anterior segment and retina practices be uh, applying for this Medicare advance or do you think it's a little safer in the retina space versus the anterior segment space? Are you guys going to differentiate the front of the eye from the back of the eye when it comes to that Medicare prepayment? Well, at least in our case, we're all one business, so it doesn't matter. But to your point, I think retina is going to continue to have some cash flow. Most retina practices will because of the continued need to see patients for their scheduled injections. And that may keep cash flow a little more healthy in a retina only practice or a practice that has retina as compared to a purely anterior segment uh, uh, group. Um, I, I agree with Alan that there's no harm in applying. Uh, we would certainly apply for the Medicare advancement, advancement prepayment loan, but I, I, I think he's absolutely right that there is going to be a cash crunch downstream from this because all of us are asking for deferment of payment of our landlords, of uh, other bills that are coming due, leases, other arrangements, our vendors, uh, interest loans, mortgage payments, everything is being kind of kicked downstream uh, because of those relationships that we have. And at some point, those bills are going to come due and they're going to come due right when our AR is about, you know, as close to zero as it can be, you know, you know, probably a few months down the road. So 
while we will certainly take advantage and apply for the Medicare uh, prepayment, I'm not sure we're going to use it unless we absolutely need to, to avoid that added stressor on, on cash flow down the road, because everybody's going to be in line, including Medicare, for a repayment of those terms. PPP is a little different. That's a longer repayment period. And some of that or all of it can be forgiven with PPP. But I, I, with Medicare, you're, it's not a grant. It's, it's a loan. You're going to pay it back. You know, that leads me into another question about how you manage drugs during this time. Alan, how are you, are you doing anything different with the drug reimbursement at this time versus say pre-COVID-19? Yeah, we, we actually are. So we have always been very, very aware of our accounts receivable and our accounts payable on the drug, uh, because obviously it's very easy to get into a false sense of security because you have a lot of money sitting around that has not been paid out yet and can give you the false sense that there's a greater profit or money is to be distributed within the corporation that are really there. With this, the Academy did a wonderful job in getting an extension of the payment terms from both Genentech and Regeneron, which was huge, you know, up to 120 days for Genentech and 150 for Regeneron. And we really got to give credit to the Academy for talking to them and more importantly, really for the company stepping up and understanding the hardship that this is uh, causing rent groups to go into now, potentially with cash flow issues, et cetera. So what we're trying to do is to take advantage of those longer payment terms, because as Rob pointed out, you know, it's almost a interest-free loan. In other words, it gives you some cash flow and monies to allow you to continue to employ people, to pay your bills, to pay rent, et cetera, and allow you to continue to function without having to rely on loans that are going to have to get paid it back in the future, for which you may end up in a cash crunch where you have monies owed to people you don't necessarily have the money to pay them with. So the short answer is yes, we're, we're using that longer term payment to help us sort of get through a, a period of time when cash flow is going to be down. That's a great answer. Rob, what about you all? How are you managing drugs differently uh, now than, than say last year? Uh, very, I mean, I just would echo everything Alan just said, and also wanted to thank the Academy for their efforts and thank the vendors, uh, the, the, the companies for stepping up as well. They're sharing in the pain for this, and it just goes to point uh, how well ophthalmology works together. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that we're really, I don't think our utilization has necessarily changed. We're obviously uh, got the same controls in place that we've always had with inventory control. I heard George Williams speak last week that they have shifted some of their patients on shorter acting uh, drugs to uh, ostensibly longer acting agents at, at the beginning of this uh, crisis to try and extend out uh, treatment intervals. And we've done some of that as well. Have you had success with tiered therapies and, and different insurance programs that tend to steer patients more towards bevacizumab? than other agents with getting them to start these patients on other agents now, as opposed to uh, pre-COVID-19? It, it actually, in our market, I think that's a market-specific question, uh, John. I, at least in our market, tiered therapy hasn't been, had a high penetrance. Uh, we have a compounding pharmacy, so a lot of our treatments started with Avastin anyways. Uh, but uh, we certainly use our fair share of branded drugs. And as time goes on, use more of them as uh, relative resistance or tachyphylaxis develops. And Alan, we had George on and he talked to that a bit. Are you seeing that in Detroit? Are you guys able to actually get more branded drugs now? 
No, I, I would suggest it really hasn't changed a whole lot. You know, we've had a big push with a lot of Medicare Advantage plans and a lot of the other HMO type plans to go to tiered or step therapy. You know, I know there's been a big push by the Academy in Washington to try to get rid of some of these regulations, especially for the Medicare Advantage plans, because truth be told, you know, we don't even have the staff right now to go and try to get an authorization, exactly. let alone to administer the drug half the time. So in all honesty, we just try to do whatever's easiest now, get the patient in the office, treat them with whatever drug they're authorized to get, and then bring them back in four to six weeks and then worry about whether or not we're going to change the drug administered. Uh, but we've seen no relaxation of the regulations to date. You know, Alan, you brought up a great point, and that is your staff. And so I think this is a great chance for us to go back to Bruce and Matt and hear just a little bit more in their second segment about how they're communicating with staff and then come back to you two and, and talk about how you're communicating with your staff, with your patients, and with your doctors. Don't let the loan forgiveness opportunity dissuade you from aggressively pursuing this loan. Because even if there was no loan forgiveness, you have the ability to pay this loan out over time at a very low rate of interest with no upfront fees, no collateral, no recourse, and no prepayment penalties. And deferment. And, have, and deferment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Deferment for up to a year on initial payments. So for Netta, you know, even if you have laid people off, you know, this gives you an opportunity, maybe if you want to bring them back, that's what the government wants you to do. And they're basically, if you incur costs by virtue of hiring, rehiring people, they're going to give you forgiveness for that. So that's why there are a lot of people right now saying, you know, I laid folks off three weeks ago, two weeks ago, whenever, or I furloughed workers. But given this kind of free opportunity, uh, why not take full advantage of that? Because it comes back to where you started, Gary, which is culture. You know, being able to wrap and embrace the people that you that have been so loyal to you, you want to do everything in your power to preserve the integrity of your team. And so that's why I think the loan forgiveness gives us that option to do so. And well, I'll add, to add something to that, Bruce, I think the one of the things that's important is there's a, maybe you can define it, there's a grace period for some of those things. We found early on when we were feeling that there were some tremors in the market, some of our team uh, were scared and started looking into and filing for unemployment, feeling like they were waiting for the hammer to come. Well, in effect, what that looks like to the employer is that they quit, okay? And, and by filing for unemployment, it naturally you know, takes them out of being able to benefit from these federal programs. And so we wanted to make sure that we educated them about, listen, hold fast, some of this detail is still coming out, but there's a grace period if they have filed for some of those things to be able to roll back from it um, to benefit from these things on the other side. But there will be a lot of things to, to you know, un, unravel from the twine ball. Yeah, and it will take the government, uh, Matt, at least three to four weeks to issue regulations on the loan forgiveness aspect of the act. So that's why I'm telling people, just get the damn loan. Don't worry about loan forgiveness. It's going to be there for you. Do the right thing for the business. So if it means hiring back some key people, because the way the loan forgiveness calculation works is the government, again, they're trying to encourage you to keep the people on your staff or rehire those that you have furloughed or you have laid off. So they're going to basically, um, they have a, a provision that says, we're going to reduce the amount of the loan forgiveness to the extent that you don't bring people back. So if you only have two people working for you today and you had 10 people before the storm hit, 
you're going to have an adjustment to the amount of the loan forgiveness. So now they're giving you a little bit of leeway to start hiring people back. And keep in mind, they get a chance to change the rules, and they're going to change the rules in the favor of small business. I'm pretty confident of that. So that's why I want to get aggressive, and that's why you take the time, as Matt said today, to get all the material organized so you're ready to hit the ground. Because I, uh, B of A told us late tomorrow or Thursday morning, they think the portal is going to be open. Okay, so a lot to digest there. You know, one of the questions from our audience member, Charlie Eifrig, uh, asked, he had heard a rumor uh, that the dollar amount that you can, uh, that you get from the Medicare Advance may actually be reduced from your PPP loan later upon audit. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Alan or Rob, do you happen to know the answer to that question? I do not. No, I do not either. There's some really easy to digest FAQs out there that deal with that issue. And I can certainly send that to you, John, if you want to distribute it. But uh, I don't. I promise you, Charlie, I'll, I'll find that answer out for you before the next episode. Um, so, Rob, let's start with you and let's talk about your staff. How have you reduced your staff? Um, what have you put those staff members that you've reduced on furlough? Have you released them? How are you managing your, the people that work for you? Uh, this is such a critical thing because I think it really gets to the core of what our groups are all about. And it really gets to the culture of your organization, how you treat employees. Uh, you know, my dad was a police officer and one of his popular things to say is, you know, you see somebody's character when times are tough and uh, goodness knows uh, you see that in companies as well. You see their culture when moments are tough or in our case, months are tough. So I think how, I think Mark Cuban is right. I think how we treat our employees over the next month or two or three is going to be critical and we will be remembered for it. Uh, long after this is over. Having said that, our principles, I'm sure, sure the same as both of you, we're trying to take care of our staff as much as we can, and not just financially, but, um, you know, we want everybody to be part of the communication message that goes out, and we've been continually communicating, as I'm sure all of you have. Um, so to answer your question, our workforce is down to about 46% of pre-COVID, and that's this week, pre-COVID thresholds. Uh, and that means, you know, 54% or whatever are, are doing something other than being and showing up for work right now. Um, we've used PTO and sick time, EIB, extended illness benefits where we need to for those that are affected. We've allowed uh, our staff to go negative on PTO. And our goal is uh, for the foreseeable future to continue to make sure they maintain their health benefits because that uh, for all of our employees and their families right now is probably as important or more important than the paycheck. Um, so a communication, as I mentioned, is a big part of that and providing resources to help them navigate. For those that are, I don't really like the term furloughed, but that's really what it is. It's a temporary work stoppage, though they're still employed. They are still receiving benefits. They are, no one has been laid off. No one has been let go. And that's a critical distinction um, because that allows them to continue to receive benefits. Let's face it, we're going to need them all when we resume operations. So we want to keep them engaged um, uh, and, and able to come back in when the time is right. Um, 
I think there are going to be a lot of factors that go into that, not the least of which we're still going to be dealing with social distancing, even probably when we start bringing staff back in. We're still going to be lifting or dealing with some restrictions, I think, in uh, uh, what we're able to do. But at some point, you're going to need them back. Rob, did you uh, did you furlough people equally in the front office from the technical staff, or was there a disproportionate furloughing of of one or the other? It, it really depended based on clinical needs. So, I, as I mentioned earlier, we do have five offices still open, running. You know, probably a third to a, of our normal schedules for retina providers, and even less for glaucoma. So retina staff and to a lesser extent glaucoma staff members, they're, they remain employed. We've redeployed some of our ASC nursing staff. We created a, a screening process at every office with two nurses at every entrance. And they're taking everybody's temperatures and doing health surveys on everybody who enters the building, including doctors and staff. So we've redeployed or repurposed some of them. There's a skeleton crew in the ASC and it, it really is and those that can work effectively from home, which by the way, is a lot of your back office people, a lot of back office work can be done from home. And I think that's going to be one thing that changes as a result of this, the more work at home options will probably be developed over time. Um, but for some, it comes down to just, there's, there's no work available. And um, I think those furloughs are affecting ASC staff probably more disproportionately than clinic staff and anterior segment more disproportionately than uh, retina and glaucoma. Alan, uh, same question for you. Uh, did you furlough? Did you lay off? What percentage of people did you uh, let go? How did you handle that as well when you talk to these patients or these, these uh, employees? Yeah, it's interesting, John. You know, uh, like Rod has said, it's very, very easy to manage and very easy to lead when things are going well. Okay, so... You know, what the employees are going to remember are not the times when it was easy for you to do something. They're going to remember what you did when the times were tough and how you handled your employees. Because we're all very hopeful that at some point in time, although we're certainly not going to go back to what was considered normal anytime soon, or at least we don't believe we will. You know, we do think that some of the restrictions, obviously, in the stay-at-home orders are going to loosen up. And so, obviously, our practices are going to rebound. And there's a huge backlog of patients that are going to have to be taken care of. And so our philosophy has been more than anything is to make sure the staff are taken care of, both from a physical standpoint in terms of trying to keep them safe and out of harm's way, and also from a psychological standpoint. You know, we want them to know that they're critical to the functioning of the practice, not only now when times are tough, but also when we know that things are going to improve. And without them, it's gonna be impossible really for us to continue to see patients. So one of the mainstays that we've really started is a, a communication forum by which you can reach out to all the employees. Uh, we send out a daily update via an email, but we also hold a town hall meeting about once a week. So we'll have a call in with all for associated retina consultants, about 150 to 170 people they call in. Uh, we take all their questions because a lot of their questions are going to be similar to other employees' questions may be. And we found that town hall is a very nice way to communicate with them. Uh, it allays some of their fears, but it also opens up and makes it known to other people in a similar boat that one person's fears are very, very similar to a lot of other people's fears as well. So that's sort of, I think, the communication that we've done and trying to just make sure everyone's on the same, uh, same 
way of thinking, the doctors and the employees. In terms of the staffing, you know, we're seeing the same thing Rob is seeing. Now, iCare Partners uh, being, you know, having over 4,000 employees spread out, a lot of those employees are in uh, optometric care, general ophthalmology, glaucoma, cornea, plastics, and they've been really devastated by this. I mean, their operations are down probably 80%. You know, almost everybody's closed down except for emergencies and urgencies. And as Rob pointed out, and it's the same thing we're seeing, that's mostly in retina and a little bit in glaucoma. Now, we at Associated Retina Consultants, because we are a retina-only practice, you know, we've been able to keep most of our employees working at about 50% of their normal clip. Uh, we've taken advantage of the working at home. So our entire billing department, our call center are all working from home. We have also uh, instituted a virtual scribe system, which has worked great. So we actually have our scribes now at home. And so the doctors are able to go in and see a patient without a scribe present. Uh, they simply call the scribe at home and they dictate to them over a telephone right now, possibly video in the future, but a telephone now. And they would dictate exactly what they would have said had the scribe been in the room with them. So it has a couple advantages. Number one, it keeps at least one additional person out of the office, which is the scribe, which is great. It increases social distancing because the scribe's not even on the premise. And it also reduces the risk to the patients because there are less interactions they have with staff. But by virtue of doing that, we also are allowed to keep more people on the payroll because we still have the need for a virtual scribe for every doctor that's seeing patients. So to some extent, even though we've greatly reduced our office hours and have reduced the number of offices that are open and the number of patients seen in each of those offices, you know, by virtue of social distancing and scheduling less patients per hour and some of these other things we've done, I would say we have about half the number of hours per employee who would otherwise be in the office working currently versus what they had been. And the only other thing I would add, and I think Rob alluded to that, is there's really three categories of employees now. There's category number one, which are the employees, they're just scared to work. And that's understandable. You know, they, they are afraid to come in and they would rather just take the time off. And they have PTO to do that. And iCare Partners has also granted something called PTOG, which is a PTO grant. And that grant is for the employees to use in addition to their PTO, which is a, a great gesture because it really helps protect a lot of these employees at the time when they're going to be the greatest at risk, which is now when they're not working. You know, we have the second group of employees that are willing to come and do whatever it takes to keep the place running. And so those are the ones that are probably getting, you know, 50 to 70% of their hours in. And then there's the smaller third category, which are the people that can't work for various reasons, such as health issues, taking care of children that are not in school, or being a primary caretaker to elderly parents or family. Alan, that's some brilliant insight. I'd never thought about the home scribe and then also breaking it down and what you're doing with some of those employees that are scared to come in. But you touched on something very important, and that is uh, those employees that have to take care of people at home. And that'll lead us into the third video uh, with Matt and Bruce talking about the FMLA. So let's go ahead and roll that video and then we'll come back to our panelists to talk about that. There's three different ways you can benefit from FMLA during this time according to Family First. Either you're sick, your loved one is sick and you're caring for them. <clears throat> There's some other little provisions in there. Or you're forced to be at home because your um, uh, children are out of daycare or out of school. 
for practices like ours, that affects a lot of people. And we are recommending those folks use some form of that FMLA during this time, but not for all their time. Some of the provisions have been, some of the parameters have been relaxed to be able to work remotely, do some hours of work, do some hours of FMLA, which normally FMLA is a long few weeks. And if you do any work, it ends, that benefit ends. That has been relaxed according to our understanding of this legislation. So we're purposefully putting a lot of our team members on FMLA three days a week, effectively, and then paying them their regular pay for two days a week, effectively. And when you do the math, that, that, that equates to about 80% of their total comp that can be um, you know, um, either relieved in taxes or relieved by loan forgiveness. Okay, they can supplement the remaining balance with their own PTO or things like that. So that, that's kind of how we're looking at the model, Gary. Yeah, so you know, I've, I've looked at the, FM, the extended FMLA guidelines and it looks like unless the healthcare worker is quarantined themselves, or are caring for a family member who's quarantined, or has a dependent like a school-aged child who is going to uh, be at home because they're no longer at school. Those are sort of the the buckets that allow someone to qualify. Am I thinking? Am I reading that correctly? You are. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say basically yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I assume for your employees that you're putting on the FMLA, they they fit into one of those buckets. But if they're I assume that would just basically be maybe staff members who have kids who are going to school and they're able to sort of get coverage on those other days. Is that kind of how you're working that out? So, so basically the way, the way we're doing it is just kind of as mentioned for those three days of FMLA paid at two thirds time, by the way. So they in effect for three days, get two days pay. Right. They're encouraged to be home with their family members who, who are required to you know, be cared for because they're out of school. Gotcha. The other two days are paid at yeah. regular rates. So that effectively gets us 80%. And, um, and just ahead, add to that, yeah, if I could add to that, two things. Number one, just to put out there, some of the folks on this phone call have less than 50 employees. And there is the opportunity for an exemption from families first, um, if, to the extent that you can demonstrate that you're, that participating in the act um, uh, would create some economic hardship. Uh, the regulations have not been published by the government yet, but that is in the Department of Labor FAQ. They call that out and they just advise uh, smaller businesses to uh, write up their reasons why participation is Don't submit it to DOL. The DOL is going to issue regulations and you may have to defend yourself later. But I also think it's important to point out the tax credits that are available. So to Matt's point, you have the forgiveness provisions under PPP, but you also have the tax credits and reimbursement under the families first, which is a big deal. And that may cover a, a significant percentage of the dollars you otherwise have to pay under the paid leave and uh, paid family emergency program. Rob, we'll start with you. And this may be a tough question to, uh, to answer, but how is FMLA affecting the practice? How do you all use FMLA? Have you had any physicians affected that needed to take FMLA? Just discuss a little bit about how this has impacted CEI. I mean, certainly FMLA has been utilized by staff in the past pre-COVID, and it's usually brought to us by the employee. We have not purposefully rolled it out as a tool right now yet uh, for employees as part of this uh, pandemic. Uh, you know, it's a, I believe this question, though, really is 
really regarding the some of the rules that apply to groups that are smaller with less than 500 employees uh, i'm not sure the paid sick leave isn't a requirement for the larger employers i'm not sure on that actually um yeah we, we do it we would follow fml guidelines for providers as well most of our providers most of our physicians that would fall under the definition of being a key employee and if you i don't know fmla law but i know within fmla regs key providers have different rules and regulations around them as it relates to implementation of fmla as it relates to compensation and when you bring them back and i'm not facile with that thank goodness we have an hr department that is very comfortable with it alan any thoughts from you on fmla and how it could impact your practice no, I'm sort of falling Rob's camp here. Uh, one of the definite benefits of being a larger group and a large organization is having a very large HR department. And in all honesty, you know, FMLA used to be complicated before COVID. Now, after COVID, it's a lot more complicated because they've expanded the definition as to when and who can qualify for an FMLA leave, uh, you know, in terms of even physicians. So we have a couple of physicians who we've actually taken out of the office because of being in a higher risk category if for no other reason than they may just be older. And so while, as Rob pointed out, I'm not sure whether or not they would or not qualify, most of them right now are just taking it as a hiatus in hopes they'll get, be back in the office over a, a short period of time. But luckily with the HR department, the rules and regulations are so complicated and uh, especially, as Rob pointed out, for organizations that are larger than 500, a lot of, a lot of the new regulations that give people pay for certain conditions just don't apply when you're a larger company. Gotcha. And, and we will delve in a bit at the end here into the private equity aspects of, of COVID-19. But for our last segment, uh, filmed by Ophthalmology Off the Grid, we're going to talk about getting things going again, specifically getting your employees back to practice, and then we'll come back to our panelists and talk about how they anticipate a relaunch once we start to recover from this. So let's go ahead and roll that fourth segment. One thing I'd like to get some uh, clarity on, this is just sort of, as I've been reading uh, the various bills and the summaries of them, uh, there's a number of good ones out there. It looks like people who make $55,000 or less if they're furloughed and they're on unemployment insurance, they're basically going to come out um, either even or ahead from what they were making uh, when they were, um, you know, fully employed. Uh, it's really the people who are making more than $55,000 a year or about $25 an hour uh, that are going to not be fully covered by unemployment insurance. And so one of the strategies I'm kind of thinking about is, um, you know, we furloughed a, a number of our, of our folks and, and most of our employees, um, et cetera, are gonna be made whole by that process. We're gonna keep, keep them on their health insurance. They're gonna get unemployment insurance, but prob probably keeping the people above that salary level um, on, um, you know, on payroll and then use our PPP loan should we get that to uh, reimburse us for that um, and and as I assume, based on what I've read, if you hire everyone back by June 30th, there's sort of a magical date of June 30th, the amount that you have contracted your staff between now and then doesn't matter as long as everybody or the majority of everybody is back uh, working full time by June 30th. Bruce, am I thinking about that right? I'm not sure because the way the loan forgiveness, there's two things on the loan forgiveness side of this. Uh, the computation period, uh, Gary, appears to be eight weeks from the date of your loan origination. 
So if your loan is activated at uh, 415, then it would be the eight weeks to June 15. So the magic date may not be June 30 the way it's written, number one. Number two, you have to, uh, in the uh, loan forgiveness uh, provision, there is a reduction calculation, a calculation you have to make to determine whether or not you're going to have your loan forgiveness dinged. And there are two aspects of it. One of them, which is relatively easy for most people to calculate, is a full-time equivalent calculation. So you have to take the actual average FTEs over the eight weeks. So if you wait and bring them back later in the period, I'm afraid that's going to work against you because you didn't have that FTE number as high as you want it to be uh, during the eight-week time frame. And so I think you need, and, and I've looked at several different interpretations of that. And sadly, even when you read the law, the law is not intuitive. And the calculations I've seen are not entirely intuitive. But my advice would be, if you're going to bring people back, you may want to do it sooner than later to ensure, again, that you get maximum forgiveness under the PPP. Yeah. Hey, Matt, Matt, let me give you a scenario. Um, you have a technician who's making $16 an hour before all this happens. Now they're making $25 an hour um, with the furlough. Um, there's a couple of comments and questions on the chat. You know, what's to make them want to come back? What kind of conversation, you know, do you have with that person who's now making, let's say, let's call it 10 more dollars an hour staying at home? Why would they want to, to come back? That, that's kind of the gist of some of the, the comments in the, in the chat room. What would you say to that? Yeah, so according to our calculations, when we furlough somebody, um, the reason that they can do better is likely, at least in all of our calculations, because they're part-time, okay? Now, um, so, you know, the definition of furlough for guys who, like me, who need to have everything taken down to a third grade level is that you're basically still employed, but not scheduled. There's no work scheduled, so we're still paying benefits and everything like that for you. So there, we can still terminate that that employee and and have it all, you know, have all the termination process take its course. And in South Dakota, we can do that at you know as a will to work state without you know any kind of warning. So I mean, the the idea is that we are we are all working back towards a, a job and a career of fulfillment uh, once this is done. Now. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Matt. I was just going to say the unemployment benefits have a date certain that they're done. So it's not as though it goes on forever. It's a 12-week opportunity for someone. And so, yeah, maybe during that period of time, they're not going to be particularly motivated because of the extra 600 bucks a week that they're get, or up to $600 a week that they're earning from unemployment. But that's it's temporal, right? It's going to be gone. And I think for most people, they're anxious to get out of the house. They're anxious to come back to work. They're anxious to coming back and being part of the family. Hence why, again, the focus on culture and team is so critical now. So I view that as, you know, somewhat of a much to do about nothing myself. Uh, I'm not focused on that at all. I'm focused on preservation of team, making sure we're protecting the integrity of our team members. If there's some unintended consequences during the next, you know, call it two to four months, so be it. Just uh, remind anyone viewing that there is the chance to ask questions of both Alan and Rob through the chat function. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and start filling that up with questions, we'll ask those at the end of the, the program. So as we wrap things up here in part four, Alan, how and, and more specifically, when do you think you'll see us coming out of this and how will we get restarted again? 
So this is obviously the million dollar question. And uh, the only thing that we've learned through all of this is that nothing is as clear as it appears to be. I mean, we'll make a decision and then two hours later, we'll completely reverse the decision because things have changed so much on the ground. Uh, just to give you an example, when things first started off on this, you know, the second or third week in March, and we decided to shut down some of the offices, we were just doing what we thought was a, a ramp down. You know, we were just going to slow things down. And we literally got off a call one night and we said, you know what, we have to shut everything down. We can't just have a mild rollback. We need to really, really put a hold on everything that we are doing. And so really what we've tried to do is focus on being one step ahead. And it, it's very hard because it's very unpredictable. You know, we've had the benefit of talking to a lot of our retina colleagues overseas, and we know what they have gone through. And the one thing that we keep hearing over and over again is that you'll never look back and say that you shut things down too early. You'll only look back and think you did it too late. So we've tried to, if anything, err on the side of being overly cautious. So to the question of when to ramp things up, so Michigan is predicted to hit its apex this week. So that doesn't mean next week all of a sudden things will be good. We just look at them as being less bad. And what we've been doing the last three weeks is basically deferring patient care, trying to keep people out of harm's way. But we know that finally you're going to have to take care of these people because of the risk of losing vision. So in the interest of individual health and public health, we've decided to start reopening offices but not increasing our patient volume per office. So in other words, we've been limiting it to just uh, 25 patients or so per day per office. So we, we think from a public health standpoint and being able to keep social distancing as it is needed to be, we're better off instead of seeing more patients per office, we're better off opening more offices to see the same number of patients, but in more sites to see them in. Now, do we know that's for sure? We don't. So we tentatively plan on rolling out a couple of offices next week to ramp up our volumes by a small amount and then reassess. And if things seem to be going okay, then the idea would be to increase the volumes and the number of days open per office by keeping the same number of patients per day per office. So really the main goal is to protect the patients, protect the physicians, protect the employees, but at the same time, trying to ramp up care. So that's our tentative plan. At least that is as of an hour ago. Um, you know, by the time I get off this call, it very well may have changed. And not to put you too much on the spot, Alan, when do you anticipate that things will be somewhat normal? If I had to take a guess, and this is 100% conjecture just based on what Michigan is going through and what we've seen overseas, I cannot see us getting anywhere back towards normal for a minimum of six to eight weeks at a minimum. So we're sort of have a two month plan in the back of our minds as to the minimum amount of time that we're gonna be in altered schedules with altered number of patients and trying to figure out how to best take care of folks. Now for the rest of Anchor Partners, and I think uh, Rob will be able to speak a little more directly to this, especially when you're talking about comprehensive ophthalmology and some of the other specialties of which they have a larger number of uh, routine visits, or I should say non-urgent visits, you know, that ramp up could be even longer because you have some states that are extending their stay-at-home orders for another one or two months. And so that could be a significant impact on those specialties where not as much of what their care that is rendered is considered urgent or emergent at this time. 
So it's going to be very interesting to see how all of ophthalmology, not just retina, is impacted as we come out of this. Rob, Alan had a great point. You have to wear two hats. You have to wear the retina hat and you have to wear the um, anterior segment hat. How do you anticipate both retina and anterior segment getting back up and running in your practice? Yeah, I absolutely agree with Alan that there are the big conundrum in all of this is we just don't know because we don't know how it's going to play out. And even when we are, uh, when we see the state lifting uh, the stay-at-home order and some of the social distancing requirements start to lift, I still think we're going to be seeing issues with patients self-selecting out coming in, staff not wanting to come in. I think the ramp up's probably going to be slower for a multi-specialty group. And that's partly by design. One of the things we did, you know, three weeks ago when we started shutting down, one of the brilliant things Dan Miller did, Dan is our chief medical officer, is just as we were shutting down the business, contracting, Dan was taking a subset of our executive team and, and started planning phase two, which is the turnaround. How are we going to reopen how are we going to ramp back up? And they've been working on that for three weeks because it's not going to be light switch. We're back to business as usual. It's going to be gradual. Um, so we've been working on how we think that's going to evolve. Uh, we see it being just as Alan mentioned, a gradual process bit by bit. Uh, part of that will depend of course on regulatory issues with the state when they allow, for example, elective surgery to resume we think that would hopefully be uh, sometime next month because like Michigan, Ohio's peak uh, hospital resource utilization peaks tomorrow. Not peak number of cases, peak hospital utilization. And that's a big difference. Um, so I think what we'll probably see is a gradual ramp up once the elective surgery ban has lifted over a two to four week period operating at reduced volumes a yet-to-be-determined volume uh, rate uh, in the beginning, we actually see it being at least a full quarter before we're back to business as usual. And that assumes that, um, you know, we don't see the flare-ups that they've seen in other countries with second or third episodes of uh, outbursts. I think it's going to be the forward to relaunching are going to be some of the biggest obstacles that practice, practices may not anticipate. I mean, I think it goes back to the thing that we started with, which is cash is king. You have to have cash to run your business. And we've, uh, I'm sure as is your practice in Allen's, we've been projecting cash needs going forward and have built a living, breathing document, a 13-week uh, look forward cash management plan on how we're going to do this, uh, trying to take everything into account on how we're going to keep the business open at a very time when our accounts receivable are dwindling. Because just at that time, you're suddenly going to be flush with a full uh, payroll again that you have to pay for, and all of your vendors are coming due. And I think managing your cash, coming up with a plan that, and it's going to have to be a living, breathing document that changes, literally ours is changing day to day as new data points come in. I think that planning will help to ensure that you can resume operations. But without that financial planning piece of it, it's gonna be hard to resume even marginal operations or a skeleton crew. So I see Very that being the biggest hurdle. Very insightful. As we wrap up here, I just wanna get a few insights on private equity. Now we've heard at the beginning of this that both of you all have uh, been involved in private equity. I consider you all thought leaders in not only this field, but in retina. 
How is private equity positioned at this time with the COVID-19? Are there cash issues, private equity well positioned, poorly positioned? Alan, let's start with you. So I think it very much depends on the private equity firm that you partnered with and the entity and what their goals really are. You know, there are lots of partnerships out there where, you know, people are sort of, I don't want to say looking for a short-term relationship, but uh, there certainly are two different schools of thought. There's the partnerships where you're trying to gain market share and then potentially you turn around and looking for a bigger partner to partner with then or to sort of sell what it is that you have built up. And then I think the other side of the coin are the partnerships where an entity is looking to be the player in eye care throughout the country. And their goal is not just to assimilate other groups into their portfolio and then look to sell that. Theirs is to assimilate other groups into their portfolio and create something that's bigger and better and stronger, et cetera. And I think if you're in that kind of an entity, which we are, and I know Rob is as well, then the private equity partnership has been a huge benefit at this time. Uh, if for no other reason than the amount of resources that they have and the expertise that they have is just far, far greater than we as individuals can provide. You know, we have, we like to think we have great business minds and we run large retina practices or large groups like CEI for a long time as Rob has. But, you know, the people in private equity, I and mean, this is what they do for a living, you know, they understand cash flow and cash flow projections. They understand ways of leveraging monies in order to make sure that you can meet payroll. They understand these things in a far, far greater fashion than we do. And so what it's really allowed us to do is it's allowed us to concentrate on the most important thing for us, which is taking care of the patients. You know, how do we get the patients in? How do we take care of the patients? And how do we keep our staff there? And while we have the backing of uh, iCare Partners and our new partner, the Partners Group, we allow them to really figure out how do we keep the cash flow the employee benefits and the employees happy in a fashion that allows us to continue to do what we need to do, which is take care of the patients. So for us, I, I think had we been doing this on our own, it would have been a far, far greater deal for us to handle alone than it is having the expertise and the backing of the partners that we're with. Rob, for you, uh, being involved in private equity, are there going to be a lot of opportunities for private equity to invest in distressed practices to help bail out practices? How do you see this playing out from a private equity side as far as acquiring practices? You know, that's a great question. I think during the pandemic itself, most private equity firms, and all of them have different growth strategies, of course, but I would imagine most are at least taking a pause on M&A activity. Uh, we've got several groups uh, that are under a letter of intent. With We continue to work towards closing those deals, but in terms of starting new deals, until things are back uh, in a more normal setting, I think it would be hard to enter into new letters of intent right now. That's not to say things stay dormant. Uh, you know, I think what was good for private equity before or during the pandemic was good before as well. And to Alan's point, I think it utterly depends on the private equity that you choose to partner with. And I completely agree with everything Alan said. Having that private equity partner has allowed me to sleep better at night as a physician partner because I can concentrate on the things that I want to do in terms of taking care of my patients, uh, as do my partners. And our administrative team can focus on operations 
um, they have helped us navigate far beyond just the capital resources. I mean, there, yes, there is that part of it, capital resources, but just navigating this, uh, they, they've hooked us up and networked us with other portfolio companies that went through the last recession. Our ophthalmology executives are on the phone every day with people in other fields in healthcare through the PE platform, just brainstorming. And that net addition of business expertise, whether it's a CFO or a COO or other things that continue to run in the background, I'm not sure we would have had any of that functionality uh, with, without their backing and their support. Um, um, you know, it's, at the end of the day, I just sleep better because of it. And I know they have our back and uh, they are motivated that they're going to do whatever it takes to ensure that we not only survive, but that we thrive going forward because what they're interested in is building a company that endures for decades to come. And one final question to each of you, Alan, um, how do you foresee COVID-19 fundamentally changing retina? Will it change retina going forward and will it change healthcare going forward? I think it's going to have a huge effect on it, John. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how much you learn when you're forced to change. You know, we all like to think we're open-minded individuals and we look at what our partners do and we learn from them and it's surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of times you really don't learn how to do things differently until you have no choice but to do things differently. And I think now things such as, you know, how do you schedule your patients? How often do you need to actually do an exam or how often do you need to do an image? What is it your patients are looking for in their visit? You know, how important is information you're giving them versus the fact that they're just coming in to get treated. You know, how many people do you actually need in the office to effectively take care of the patient from a staffing standpoint? The whole idea of this virtual scribe that we've used has been transformative. I mean, it, it works great. You know, there's less people in the room. Uh, the interaction with the patient is probably a little better because you don't have as many folks trying to understand what's being said. Um, so I think it's going to have a big effect going forward forever. Um, I, I, and I just think we're going to learn from it. And I think that's the most important thing is you have to learn from the tough times and adapt them so that we can make the good times even better. Rob, same question to you to close yeah. out. How is this going to fundamentally change retina? I, I think it's going to change medicine, not just retina. I think there's five or six key things we're going to see here. And, and Alan touched on most of them. I, it, it has already changed our social interaction with our patients, and that's likely not going to change for the foreseeable future. We're no longer shaking hands. There's no glad handing. We don't have families in the room, and I don't see that social interaction changing anytime soon. Secondly, I think it's going to really change how we screen patients coming into our buildings, even long after the pandemic has gone. We've learned from it. Uh, patients coming in for elective surgery and non-urgent office visits probably should be screened. If they're not healthy, they should reschedule. I think that's true for staff as well. Rather than just bucking it up and, and coming in sick, we need to rethink that. I think PPE utilization is going to change. I think, uh, you know, we're all accustomed to wearing masks and gloves now. But go back two, three months ago, John, we weren't uh, routinely doing that. And I don't think it's going to be just for injections. I would not be surprised if some practices and providers start doing this as part of their interaction with all patients, even for exams, much as a dentist does. Um, I think just in time, supply chain vulnerability has to change. We could talk all hour about that issue, but it's very clear we all need to have not just a national reservoir, but 
reservoirs within our practice. That has to change tomorrow so that we don't get caught like this again. Telehealth has been increased acceptance. I didn't see that coming. And almost overnight, you saw providers, you saw uh, uh, you know, other entities, regulatory agencies, even patients accepting it. I think payers will be the last holdout there, whether they continue to accept that. I think the most important thing that's going to come out of this for all of us, and I'm talking about big picture society as well as small picture practice, is disaster and contingency planning like we've never done before, because who could have imagined this? Um, I think, you know, at, at CEI, at CBP, we've been writing a pandemic playbook from day one, and we rewrite it every day. And when it's all said and done, we're going to put it all together and then apply it to other different disaster scenarios, because it's something else is going to happen where you need to be able to react. And uh, that was not part of our our uh, SWOT analysis on a routine basis. It will be going forward, I assure you. Well, guys, I'll tell you, that was an absolutely fantastic hour and a half that you've given us. I think very insightful for all of the new Retina Radio uh, listeners and, and people watching online. I want to thank both you, Alan, and you, Rob, for taking tonight out to come out and talk about all of this. And it's really nice to hear some of the changes that are happening in the, and the hope that we have for this actually not only getting better, but actually making what we do better. I want to thank everybody at New Retina Radio and thank you for watching. Have a good evening. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.